Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. So this morning, um, it's been in the works for a while, and uh, I kind of want to essentially share this morning um, kind of the state of my heart as it relates to us as a church and what God's calling us toward. Um, Years ago, during the Methodist revivals and and prayer meetings, um, they started to become more habitual than, than heartful. And some of the leadership felt like that was a problem, but that's the nature of things that we do repeatedly, isn't it? Everything that maybe starts with great purpose and vigor and fervency can very easily become something that's just kind of a, a, a rote habit. And so we have to think about how, how we do that. And, and so they, they decided that at every meeting Every time they gathered, whether it was a prayer meeting or a business meeting, that they would begin by going around sharing the true state of their heart, which wasn't just a, hey, how are you? I'm fine. It was a um, being vulnerable with the the light and the darkness that's going on inside of them. And uh, that led to numerous revivals and and, and things that that God did. Um, So this morning, I kind of want to share that state of my heart and uh, kind of um, where I see us as a church. Um, And the interesting thing, anytime we gather together, uh, the dragon, the enemy, the ancient serpent always wants us to move in a sideways direction. Um, No matter what it is, but anytime God's people come together, whether it's two of them or 50 of them or 100 or or 1,000 of them, he always wants to move them away from being focused on Jesus. Um, a couple weeks ago, Saturday, the, the day before Christmas, um, so our family kind of did all our traditional things on Saturday morning. And so we got up and we were doing stockings uh, and some things were said and they weren't great things. And I reacted to it. And... In my reaction, which was very animated, I was both right and wrong. Don't you love it when you are both right and wrong? Which if you were just right, you wouldn't have anything to fix, but you're also wrong in that moment, and it kind of messes everything up. And so my reaction led to everyone parting ways in that moment um, after after going through stockings and then going ready to go to eat, that turned into everyone going to their rooms and me walking out of the house and going for a walk. I know none of you would do that. You're all much more spiritual than myself. Um, And as I was going for a walk, I felt like it was pretty clear of what God wanted from me in both my right and wrongness. Um, I joke about parenting and kids and all that, but here's the best parenting advice that I have, and I think it's pretty solid. Um, Parent, if you parent with humility, then you win every time. 
Um, doesn't matter the age of your kids, whether they're young, middle-aged, or old. If you parent with humility, you win every time. Um, so I came back and talked to Sherry and wasn't fully in the right place in that moment. Um, I felt I was more wrong, right than wrong. She felt I was more wrong than right. Um, I've heard it both ways. Um, but I was pretty clear of what I believed God wanted me to do. So I had us all get together in the, in the living room and <clears throat> I had to confess. Confess um, where I was wrong and where I don't lead as a dad well. And what's cool about it is that God took that moment and the dragon did not have his way on our Christmas morning. And I think that one of the things that we are not nearly as aware of consistently is when we come together, the dragon's desire to take those things away from us whether something's triggered because of something someone said or we interpret something in a way that we are very sure that's how it was meant. Um, it's only through humility and our stored up intimacy with Jesus that we win in those moments. Um, and, and so <clears throat> I think as we continue to move forward, my, my, one of my challenges, I guess, to you is is especially now in this intersection that we're in, if there is something with anyone else who's in God's family that you are kind of like, I don't like this, or this was offensive, or this was wrong, or this was whatever you want to, whatever your mind goes with, don't let it sit there. As the Bible says, go to them and ask questions. Um, because the reality, especially even when I think about the context even right now and this morning, um, I'm gonna say things that I think are really clear. I mean, not all of the things I'm gonna say I think are really clear, <laughs> hopefully, but there's gonna be some things that I say that I'm pretty sure I said accurately and you're gonna hear and you're gonna interpret in a very different way. Um, and so I would, I would encourage you um, to make sure that you seek clarity in that because when we don't, the dragon wins. Um, a couple years ago, January 2021, we were meeting over across the street in the pavilion and uh, I shared four things that I believed God was leading us toward. Um, one of those things was uh, that God was leading us toward re recapturing um, a purely biblical worldview that doesn't just look at things at face value but also recognizes the spiritual world and the powers behind what's happening in our midst. Um, honestly, that's one of the reasons we did our Christmas series the way we did, because we miss a lot if we are only focusing on a baby in a manger, because there's, there's a dragon outside of that manger waiting, doing what he's always done, trying to derail the redemptive work of God in, in the world. And if we're not aware of that, and if we don't see that, we are at best at a disadvantage. At worst, we're deceived and blinded. 
The second thing that, that I shared uh, on that day was um, that we don't know what we don't know. <laughs> and to learn some things that we don't know that are wrong with us, that maybe our culture has creeped into our Christianity, we are going to find ways to learn from the global church and particularly the persecuted church in the East. And so to let them help reveal to us the things that we don't see that we're blind to. And so the third thing was actually about discipleship. It was remarrying discipleship and evangelism because they're not different things. They're not activities, they're not events, they're not programs, they are our life. Discipleship is our life. Um, everything else we do leads up to that. Um, and then the fourth thing was that we would engage and listen to and pursue the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our midst. Um, and as I look over the last couple of years, we've been doing those things. Um, in fact, some of those things have frustrated some people. <laughs> um, but we've been doing those things probably more consistency, consistently than I've done anything else. Um, we've been constantly doing that. In fact, the pursuit of those things have, have, have turned into some interesting conversations. Um, for example, the more we talk about the Holy Spirit and his gifts and the way he works, and acknowledging him, um, the more conversations I've had with people uh, of, of, the, of the kind of the, the place of, hey, are we becoming Pentecostal? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> and the Pentecostal church doesn't only have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Jesus said, I'm going away and that's good for you so that the Holy Spirit can come and he will guide you into all truth. He is who will be with you all day, every day period. And so if you're not acknowledging and recognizing his work in your lives and, his, and constantly pursuing the Holy Spirit, then, then you're missing something and you're not actually taking Jesus's advice. Um, we've been uh, doing communion every week and uh, it's been kind of created some interesting conversations. Um, I think if you read the Bible as it stands without cultural additives, um, it's pretty clear that when Jesus starts communion and you watch the early church, they didn't celebrate communion once a month on Sunday at church. They did it every time they got together on Jesus' suggestion. When you gather, whether it's two of you or a hundred of you, remember me in this way. And a few people ask if we're becoming Catholic. because <laughs> we're doing communion every week. No. And again, that's probably one area that the Catholic Church has a better grasp on what Jesus wants than we do. We do communion every week because we want to remember what Jesus did and we want to remember our place and our participation in his work and in the mission that he's invited us to. Transformation is an interesting thing. Transformation we talk a lot about in Christianity and the Bible talks about transformation. Transformation is defined in the dictionary as a thorough or dramatic change in form or appearance. A thorough or dramatic change. 
Would we say, if we were to evaluate this about ourselves, would we say our life with Christ is a thorough and dramatic change from everything the world has to offer? Um, here's some synonyms with transformation. Conversion, metamorphosis, revolution, about face, flip-flop. Some antonyms are, are things that are opposite of transformation, are stagnation and preservation. That's a bit threatening, isn't it? <laughs> Paul says in Romans 12, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Have a revolution. Have a metamorphosis, an about face. By the renewal of your mind, don't stagnate or just be preserved, but have a revolution. By the renewing of your mind that by testing, you may discern what the will is, what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, anything less than transformation in my life is making a deal with Jesus rather than surrendering to him. And I think we, it is natural to make deals with Jesus. Jesus, I can't really do this for whatever reason, but I'll do this. Anything short of absolute transformation. You see, a person who's really transformed in the likeness of Christ cannot look anything like the world. They can't be confused with the world. They can't be confused with any worldly ideology, period. It's impossible if we're truly being transformed by Jesus. No matter how good or moral or ethical that ideology is, it's impossible. Conversation I had lately was, uh, and I totally understand this, um, on a few occasions from up here, I've commented on voting and uh, how it's good to vote, but it's probably not the most important thing that we have to do. Um, we've talked about prayer. So I was in a conversation about, you know, so, so, you know, I mean, you know, do we just not vote? I mean, you know, what, what you seem to be demeaning or making voting less important. Um, I actually think faced with scripture and what Jesus says in my own life, um, I actually think we've made voting too important. Um, and, and here's why, let me, let me explain. Um, Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. And I think we tend to apply that in a very surface way. Um, easy ways, like, well, taxes and our gatherings, that's God's. Taxes are Caesar's. Some people say that. <laughs> but, but here's what's interesting. I grew, I grew up in a church where we rarely had full church-wide promoted prayer meetings. But we did every four years. The night before an election, we'd have a prayer meeting. Not every two years, because the midterms don't matter as much. But every four years, we'd have a prayer meeting the night before an election. Let me ask this, how is it that we would think God would hear our prayer when we 
do a lot of signage on our lawns and a lot of campaigning and a lot of research into the candidates and spend one night maybe together in prayer before it happens. Do we think God is really gonna respond to that? I think giving to God what God and God's and what Caesar's is Caesar's is voting. But what about a 10-day fast going into that day before you vote? Has anyone ever tried that? I know that, I'm sure that there are people. I haven't. See, here's the thing that I think about voting is that we've had in our country the privilege and opportunity to vote and those votes matter for a long time, which is kind of an outlier in human civilization and history. And here's the problem with voting, is voting is temporal. What if you all of a sudden couldn't vote? What would you do then? You know what's not temporal? Prayer. You know what's always been powerful? Prayer. You know what's available to people who are incarcerated who don't get to vote? Prayer. But I've lived my life like voting is really powerful and prayer is just something we do, as long as I remember. And that's why I say those things, to challenge myself and to challenge us. Because I think we can put too much weight into things that don't matter. And when I say that don't matter, I'm saying it in the same way that Jesus says, you can't follow me unless you hate your mother, brother, sister, father. Jesus didn't really mean, I want you to literally hate your mom and your dad and your siblings. But he said, your loyalty to me and your love for me might actually make your family feel like you don't love them as much as you do because you are so sold out to me. To the point that my commitment to prayer and fasting and the power that's contained within those things makes it look like to me in my life, voting doesn't matter. And it's interesting, uh, <clears throat> Methodist pastor William Bramwell, old dead guy, said of his, his own denomination, the Methodists, he said, the reason why the Methodists in general do not live in this salvation of Jesus Christ is that there is too much sleep, too much meat and drink, too little fasting and self-denial, too much conversation with the world, too much preaching and hearing, and too little self-examination and prayer. And that's actually a theme in Scripture. Back in the Old Testament, God says to Israel and he says to Solomon, he says, don't gather up a whole bunch of chariots and horses because when you do, you will depend on your army rather than your God. He says later to Israel, he says, you were wandering and hungry and I fed you and I filled you and then you walked away from me. There's a theme throughout all of scripture that when God's people are satisfied or have much, they walk away from God. They dilute God's message. You do your own search of scripture and see that that's true. And, 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 so, and so where we are today, for me, I feel like I've been going through a transformation. I think I'm very different than I was a couple years ago. In fact, a friend of mine here in this church sums this up well. She was sharing with me that she and her husband were with another couple on vacation 
And uh, this other couple, they've been friends with them for, for a long, long time. And uh, they're another couple that loves Jesus. And so they're on vacation. And she started to do some things that she doesn't normally do because, she, because of things she saw. And this other couple were like, why are you doing that? That's messing up our vacation. But she said, no, this is what God wants us to do. And she said to me, she said, I was thinking to myself, these people have changed. And she said, but that's not true. She said, actually, I've changed. I think differently today than I did two years ago. I act differently than I did. They haven't gotten worse or anything, but they haven't changed the way I've changed. They don't see Jesus the way I see Jesus. They don't see obedience the way I see obedience. And it made it weird. And that's, that's kind of how I feel. I feel like in a lot of ways in my relationships, I start to think these people have changed, but actually they haven't. It's that I've changed. But I think that's the path. That's called transformation. This morning, I want to share what I think is a biblical picture of the church. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can go to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation, Jesus gives this picture to John, and he talks through seven different churches. And the last one is the church of Laodicea. I personally believe that Jesus' letter to the church in Laodicea is a warning for us as to what the church at the end of the age has the potential to look like. And I actually have settled pretty firmly on what I think is a fact, that God brought the pandemic and everything with it to warn the church, his church on this earth, that we are much more like the church of Laodicea than we are the church that he envisioned in his mind. Last week, we were uh, out of town in one of my favorite places, St. George, Utah. South, southwest corner of Utah, and um, it's red desert, it's beautiful. I love, I love the land, I love the geography, I love the restaurants, I love everything. And the, the house that we stayed in is on this bike loop, and so we go kind of most of the way up this hill, big hill, and stay in this house. So I <clears throat> rode my bike and there's an 18 mile bike path. And the beginning part of it, it goes downhill into town and you're going by, there's these beautiful, beautiful, it's beautiful scenery, it's incredible. And you get down into town after riding downhill going pretty fast, like I can just coast at like 35 miles an hour. And, and you get down and then you kind of go through town a little bit and then you come out and then head out toward this place called Snow Canyon State Park, which is right there in town, and I love it. It's just gorgeous. And so you ride through Snow Canyon State Park, and, and you're going through this place where this valley and these huge red cliffs are on either side of you, and it's just, I mean, caves. I mean, it is gorgeous, and I love it, and I feel like I'm, if, if I could imagine it, it's like the gateway going into heaven. Um, but after you get through that and you connect back, the bike path ends and you connect back with the road to go up to the bike path, which is on the other, the other side of the state park. Once you hit the road, you start to hit an incline, which is a mile long 
and you ascend 1,500 feet. Now, I don't know if you know anything about, about incline and the intensity. That is an intense bicycle ride. That's an intense walk. And so over a mile, it, it, it goes 1,500 feet. It is really hard <laughs> to, to ride my bike up that hill. What I've learned, though, is that I need to keep going because if I stop, I will not get back on and go. And I, I saw people stopping and walking and I saw one lady as I was approaching, she just stopped, turned around and rode back down the hill. <laughs> but but in, in, this is how bad I am in, in the way I think very not Jesus-like. And I saw this state park ranger coming toward me in their vehicle and I'm, I'm in the midst of this, I'm like a half mile in and I'm pedaling and I'm, I'm, I'm going. And I see this person coming and I'm like, if, if they want to stop me and ask me if I have a permit to be in this park, I'm gonna ignore them. They can arrest me. They can shoot me. I don't care. I'm not stopping because if I stop, I'm not getting back on. And they just drove by. So I, just, I have a problem, obviously. But, but I kept going and, and, I, and I got up to the top. And what's great about it is you get to the top and then you kind of crest this corner and then you ride down a little ways right back to where I was staying. And so it's just kind of freewheeling, easy, the rest of the way. I think that if human history is set in that bike loop, I think that where we are right now is we are almost to that incline. I think that things are gonna get real steep real quick. And it's gonna be steep for a while. I mean, to get up that hill, it took me two and a half Maverick City Dante Brown songs to get through that. That's like forever. Those are long songs. So it's like we're heading into this incline that's pretty serious right now. I, I don't think we've hit it yet. We're, we're kind of in town going a little bit up, a little bit down. But I think where we are in history, redemptive history, I think we're hitting the incline and it's gonna get rough. And, and I think that God's warning us that his church cannot be the church of Laodicea because we won't make it if we are. But I think it's pretty clear that, that we characterize that church more than a healthy church. And when I say we, I mean, I mean the North American church, the Western church, I think the global church to some degree. I think some churches are better off because they actually are suffering with Christ. And so they're more like Jesus. Here's, here's what Jesus says in Revelation 3. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot, cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So Jesus says about this church, they're, they're neither hot or cold. And you know, there's of, there's a handful of different ideas that scholars kind of take on that. But, but one thing that's clear, it's not a good thing that they're lukewarm. In fact, not far from Laodicea, there's a, there was a town called uh, Heropolis. And they were well known for having these phenomenal hot springs. And, and so people would go there. That, that, was a, that was a spot to go to vacation and to relax. And, you know, like, I, I love a good, a good hot spring or hot tub. That is, that is my thing. And, and I love that. And, and that's what people knew about. Well, again, not far from Laodicea was also the town of Colossae. Paul wrote a letter 
book of, of, of Colossians. And in that town, that town had and was known for these streams of clear, cold, pure water that people would be able to enjoy and be refreshed from. And what's interesting about Laodicea is that where it is, they have a river that dries up every summer. So they had these, they would get water through viaducts. And these viaducts were made with rock and, 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 and hewn through stone and different things like that. And, and part of it was there was limestone used and different things. So as the water would get to, to Laodicea, it would be warm, tepid. It would be full of impurities and silt and things that it picked up along the way. There wasn't a water treatment plant that it went through on the way into Laodicea. And it was often even foul smelling and people were known to get sick from drinking that water. Now think for a second, if you're a Laodicean and you're hearing this and Jesus says, you're neither hot nor cold, you are lukewarm. What is the first thing that pops into your mind? That water that I gag on that I spit out of my, I mean, if you're new there and you're visiting, you're passing through and you're like, oh, I'm gonna have a taste of water and you're chewing it and it smells terrible, you're gonna gag and spit it out of your mouth. There is no more offensive picture that Jesus could have picked for the Laodiceans than to say, I will spew you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. You are no better than the water. Basically what Jesus was saying to them is your worship of me that you're offering me is like that water you're drinking and you are not honoring me. You are at best full of impurities. I mean, you're still water, but you're a horrible tasting water. And, and, and it's, it's interesting, like, I, I think that really, if, we, if, we, if we're honest, we're a lukewarm church. We are, as the church as a whole, we're lukewarm. You know how I know that? Because of what's happened in the last couple of years. We've made things that are semi-important the things that are ultimately important. I heard somebody say that this way, which I thought was awesome. She said, I don't care if you wear a mask or you don't wear a mask, I just wanna see you at the wedding supper. The church's behavior over the last few years, it's not just the last few years, but I think is a pretty solid indictment that we are neither hot nor cold. We're hot on the things that we wanna be hot about. We're cold on the things we wanna be cold on, but we're lukewarm on a lot of things. Jesus says in John, 20, or John 12, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. How many of us has really, really taken that seriously? Is my life really like a grain, is a seed, a grain of wheat that's fallen in the ground, died, been buried, and bared fruit? I'll be honest, I don't know that I've died. I don't know that 
I don't know that most of, you're gonna have to figure this out for yourself, but, but I don't know that, that, that most of us have really died to ourselves and lost our lives because we protect our lives pretty fiercely. That's not what Jesus calls us to, but we're really good at it. And, and, so, and so there's, because of that lukewarmness, there is this, this false sense of who they are because he goes on and he says, in verse 17, he says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I don't know that there has ever been a church that has been more wealthy than the American church. We are privileged as Christians in this country. And there's nothing wrong with that other than the warning that starts in the Old Testament to say, hey, make sure you don't rely on your power that you have because you will be tempted to replace me with your power. That's the danger but there's nothing inherently wrong with being a church with wealth and privilege. I mean, honestly, we have bank accounts, we have buildings, we have retreat centers, we have everything. So when we were in um, Rocky Kurdistan, I uh, got to meet with a guy and he was talking about fasting and I was like, yeah, yep, I'm all about fasting. And then he said that, that, that they're doing a, 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 20 day, a 20 day Daniel fast. Like Daniel fast, that's to lose weight and be healthy, right? That's what I've heard that in the context of. And he said, no, not at all. That's actually a consecrated time of sacrifice, of fasting and seeking God. And God responds to that because of his love and that that's how he chooses to respond to us. And, and right there I was convicted and I was like, well, the people I was with were kind of like, well, I think this is what God's calling us to do. So tomorrow I'm starting a, a 10 day Daniel fast. Yesterday, I was sitting in my kitchen, very angry because this is impossible. I, had, I, like, I was so, I was like, at one point, I was like, there's no way I can do this because it's so complicated. I have to make a grocery list to go, I have to make my own stuff and it is impossible. I was like, done, I'm done with God. I'm done with everything. I'm just out. I'm clearly out. God is not worth it. And I just have to walk away from God. Like that's, that's where I was yesterday. And the Sherry's like, do you want some help? I'm like, you don't want to help me right now, but later I do need help for sure. <laughs> <laughs> how I see myself as comfortable and in control. Man, rich. I don't need anything. Yet I have a crisis of faith because I'm going to do a different meal plan. It's interesting, scripture never ever even comes close to guaranteeing us the right to gather. It does tell us not to forsake gathering, but it doesn't guarantee us the right. Here's what scripture does say. 
2 Timothy 3, Paul says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my, conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, all good things. Paul is nailing it on following Jesus. He's doing everything God wants. Then he says, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What does that mean? If we were all Bible scholars, what is, it, what is really the Bible saying when it says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? I don't know that you need a biblical degree to figure that out. Something I think is true, and you can figure that out for yourself, or you can say, no, that's not true. I think my, my depth of intimacy with Jesus will be the same as my suffering with Jesus. My depth, my depth of intimacy with Jesus will be equal to my suffering with Jesus. That is not just defensible biblically, but I'd actually say fairly clear biblically. And as much as the evangelical church, evangelical conservative church hates the prosperity gospel, we love prosperity gospel light. We do. And, and, and so, and so, God actually, Jesus says to them, he says, look, you're not rich and privileged and you're actually wretched. And wretched isn't like ugly, it's, it's you're beaten down. You've been abused, you're afflicted. You're blind and you're poor. And, and he says, no, you don't have. It's kind of like what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it just grates against the idea that, hey, we're good, we're prideful and we have all these things and we're good, we're set. We're, we, we've got everything managed. He says, no, 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 blessed are you if you're poor in spirit. And so the church in Laodicea, and I think the church today, thinks it's doing well and thinks it knows the solutions, but actually it's blind to its own weakness. And so this is what, this is what Jesus says. He says, so, and I want you to catch this, the irony in this. He just says that you're not rich, you're poor. You don't have anything you're deceiving yourselves. And then he says this, I counsel you, like everybody needs counseling at some point. God's the best counselor ever. So he says, I counsel you, and here's what he counsels, here's his counsel. To buy from me gold refined by fire, that's a purification process, so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Anybody catch the irony in that, what Jesus just said? You don't have anything, so I want you to buy from me gold and clothing. Jesus is ridiculous. Like, what if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I literally have nothing. I don't have any money, but I need food. And my response to that person is, I can give you some restaurant recommendations, and so you should go buy some food. Okay, did you hear what I said? I don't have any money, but I need food. 
great. Here's some restaurants. You can go buy food from them. That's literally what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're poor, you don't have anything, so come buy gold refined by fire from me and garments to cover your shame and salve for your eyes so that you can see. Like, so how is that even possible? Well, it's possible because, again, God needs us to see our bankruptcy and our poverty in order to do what he is intended to do in us. All the way back to Isaiah, Isaiah 55. God says this, come, everyone who thirsts, listen to language here, come to the waters and he who has what? No money, come, buy, he who has no money, buy and eat. Come, the one who has no money, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So back in Isaiah, God says the same thing. You who have no money, come by and eat the richest of foods. How does that work? We can't surrender to Jesus as long as we're dependent on ourselves. It doesn't work. Jesus says, come to me in Matthew 11, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, that means laying your stuff down. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven so that we could buy with no money. <laughs> and we, it, we, we get all of these things on Jesus' credit. And we never have to repay because we can't repay. And so he does all of this for us, but we have to empty ourselves up first and we have to recognize that we are not rich. We are not wealthy. We aren't what we think we are. We aren't what the world tells us. And then even though maybe it worked for a while, where, the, where only, only candidates who pleased the church could get voted in, while that worked for a while, that's not our bread and butter. Because that ends, that's temporal. And frankly, those candidates didn't even honor God anyway. And so Jesus says, no, no, no you, you need to come and get this from me. Gold purified with fire, that means it's gonna be a process that's hard for me because that's a refining process and that's painful and that's hurt, that hurts. He says, take my white garments, that is the righteousness of Jesus on us, that we are righteous because of what he offers us freely. And just in case that concerns us, and we're kind of like, man, this is, this is hard. And these are strong words. I've been, a couple conversations with people that I can be negative and discouraging sometimes in sermons. I'll be honest, when I'm preparing to share God's word, my goal is not to be encouraging or discouraging. My goal is to listen to what the Spirit says and treat 
God's word with the dignity and respect and honor that it demands. And sometimes that's really encouraging and sometimes that is a mirror in which we see ourselves and it's not great. But even with the things that sound good and the things that sound hard, God is always loving his people and his church. Verse 19 says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. See, God loves us even in our worst state. God loves the Laodicean church. Don't let that, don't miss that here. He might be pretty harsh with it. He might be pretty harsh right now with the church and the state of the church, but he loves the church. He loves us. He loves you no matter how bad the state that you're in right now. You know how I know that? Because of the troubles that we face. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, consider him, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son who he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there with whom the father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which you've all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not be more subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. God loves the church, full stop. God loves you, full stop. But we have a deluded focus. And here's how I know. Here's how I know we look like the Laodicean church. If you talk to people and this includes Christians. This includes me. I think this includes us. One of our biggest concerns driving our decisions today is the concern about the nation our children will grow up in, and we want to make it a better place for them to grow up in. Do you know that making your nation a better place for your children is not even on Scripture's radar? Not even close. And, and it's understandable because that's a natural inclination. But you know what is on Scripture's radar? Raising your children to be able to endure persecution and suffering for the kingdom of God so that they can continue to carry out the commissioning that God has sent us on to take the gospel to the ends of the world, to every tribe and nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do everything that Jesus commanded. That's what we are supposed to be doing. And that's how I know our faith has been diluted. Our Christianity has been hijacked 
because we're more concerned about the nation we leave our children than we are the nations that we are bringing to the king of glory. That's how we know. So Jesus says in verse 20, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. <laughs> One of the ways that we have understandably so hijacked this verse is that we throw it in the context of an unbeliever. I remember the, the portrait at my little Baptist church growing up. You know, the one with the door, kind of cloudy, dark, and it's got Jesus, very attractive Jesus with long hair, very pale, going to knock on the door with this verse out of context and said, Jesus is knocking on the doors of the unbelievers waiting to come in. But you see, Jesus said this in the context of his church. And there's no way around that. Jesus says he's knocking at the door of the church in Laodicea and waiting for someone to answer. And I think it's pretty clear to me that Jesus has been knocking at the door of his church today. He's been knocking at the door of our lives because we haven't really died to ourselves. We haven't been willing to take, be the seed that goes into the ground and is buried and died and grows to, to produce much fruit. You see, life is fleeting for all of us. And in a very short time, every single one of us will give an account before Jesus Christ. And for me, not only will I have to give an account of how I shepherded this flock, but more primarily, how well I have obeyed the command to make disciples of all nations. And that is also the primary thing that you will have to give an account to Jesus Christ, how you obeyed the command to make disciples of all nations. There may be some other things that you account for, like your words, but the primary thing will be how you've obeyed his command to make disciples of all nations. He won't be that concerned about your portfolio he won't be worried about where you lived. I doubt he's gonna ask you how you voted. But he will ask you to give an account of how you obeyed his command to make disciples of all nations. So Jesus is knocking. And then this is how he wraps things up. Verse 21 says this. The one who conquers, 
I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as sure as I sit on my father's throne. See, the, the problem is with this, we have to let Jesus define conquer the way he defines conquering. Not the way we define it. I have heard a lot of Christians, a lot of pastors, talk more about lawsuits that they've won than souls that they have fervently contested for. See, Christ conquered sin and Satan and death by never veering from the path of divine love. It cost him his life, but he gained the world. And now he writes to the church, he writes to, to offer us a share in his universal rule, to sit on the throne with him. If we will conquer, and that conquering is if we will overcome the menace of lukewarmness and spiritual self-satisfaction. And the only way to get there to that kind of power and victory, namely, is by taking all the locks off our doors and asking the living Christ to come in and eat with us and be fully dependent on him while never wearying or tiring of doing good. I said earlier that I think, I think our intimacy with Jesus is going to parallel our suffering with him. And I don't just mean that suffering is the consequence of obedience to the mission. A lot of times we think, well, suffering is just a consequence of being obedient to Jesus. I no longer think that's true. I, I actually think suffering is one of Christ's strategies for the success of the mission he's called us on. It's different as a consequence or, a, or, a, or a something on the side versus a strategy. Do you know that suffering was Christ's strategy for our salvation? It wasn't a byproduct. And for us, I, I'm, I'm, I'm at the place where I believe that suffering is one of his strategies for, succession, or for success in the mission he's called me on. See, Jesus said, listen to what Jesus said to his disciples. And, and how, how can we get around this? Jesus said to his disciples as he sent them out, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves in Matthew chapter 10. Let me ask you this question. Is there any world in which sheep go into the midst of wolves, they aren't torn apart? They're not. Jesus says, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. That's his strategy. That is a strategy ridiculously hewn with suffering. Then, then there, there's no doubt what happens when sheep go among wolves. 
In, in, in fact, Paul confirms this reality in Romans 8, where he says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I love the fact that in Revelation, when all is said and done, Jesus is called the lamb who was slain, and he is the only one who is able to open the scroll. So being sheep among wolves, suffering is not a bad deal for us. If it, if it turns into the lamb who is slain, who is, who is able and worthy to open the scroll. You see, suffering was not just a consequence of Jesus' obedience and mission. It was the central strategy of his mission. It was the whole ground of his accomplishment. Jesus calls us to join him on that same road, that road to Calvary, to take up our cross, to hate our lives in this world, and to fall into the ground like a seed and die that others might live. We are not above Jesus Insulating ourselves is not the plan Jesus has for us. To be sure, our suffering does not pay for anyone's sins, but it is a deeper way of doing the mission that we are called to. John chapter nine, verse four, Jesus says this, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, because night is coming when no one can work. Here, here's the reality of, remember I said, I, I think that we're at that place where we're about to go up that pretty severe incline. We only have a little bit of daylight left. And we've got to be doing the works that can be done during the day because there's gonna be a time where the only witness we have is our martyrdom. The only witness we have is how well we die for Jesus. That may happen in my lifetime, it may not, but we are heading to that incline and we are heading up that hill and we will not make it up that hill if we are not intimate with Jesus and the way we become intimate with Jesus is we suffer with him. Your most significant relationships are with people who you've suffered with, not the people you've partied with. And so that's what we're to be about. And it's these things that help understand how I've changed. Because I don't want to waste any more time messing around. And I know that's not comfortable. It's not what we want to hear. It's true. Hebrews 12, I'm gonna read it through the message paraphrase because I love how, it, how it's worded. Speaking of the great cloud of witnesses, do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on, it means we'd better get on with it. Strip down, start running, and never quit no extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it. 
because he never lost sight of where he was headed, that exhilarating finish in and with God. He put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. When you find yourself flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility he plowed through that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. That's what we need right now. I wanna keep transforming, becoming more intimate and obedient to Jesus, receiving and doing and storing the things that are eternal in nature. I wanna know the love of Christ exactly where I am, dismantling my security system and removing all my locks so that Jesus has full access to every part of my life so that I am characterized as a conquering overcomer just as his life was in the very same way he accomplished victory. And here's the thing. Not everyone who has been forgiven by Jesus and goes to church wants this. Because it's hard. So we have to make a choice if we wanna be lukewarm and spewed out of Jesus' mouth or if we wanna lay ourselves down in the ground and buy gold refined by fire in white garments clothed with the righteousness of Christ, hearing and seeing all that he's doing. Because Matthew 24, Jesus says this, and this gospel of the kingdom, this gospel of forgiveness and redemption and suffering and victory and overcoming will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. You know what our part is in this, in this road? It is to make sure that this gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed to every nation and tribe and tongue, and then Jesus will take care of his part. That's our part. And that's what we're called to be about. I've gone over. But we do have another song. Is it okay if we go sing together as we let this settle? Church, I believe we are in, this, in an extraordinary point in history. So that means we need to be extraordinary followers of Jesus. Don't be deceived. Jesus, I thank you for who you are and your holiness. I pray that you would confront us with your holiness and the way all spiritual beings respond when they are confronted with your holiness is they fall to their face. God, may we fall to our face. And when you lift us up, clothed in your righteousness, with a backpack full of refined gold, that we will carry out your mission.
that the world may know. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Thank you.